Okay, so I've got uh, two. I have two motivations for being here today. Okay, um, and I have. Uh, and, and so the first one is um, my wife and I, uh, 15 years ago, um, uh, moved into an inner city neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, for the purpose of. Um, well, we didn't really know what. Uh, we just felt God's leading to to basically move into this inner city community and to raise our family there. And there wasn't really a, a, a very specific vocation that was tied to the work that we felt like we were supposed to do. We just, we just felt like the Lord was leading us to move into this neighborhood. And um, uh, we were, at the time, uh, going to a church um, similar to this one. It was, it was a large church, um, suburban church, fairly wealthy church. And uh, my wife and I were both working at that church at the time. We were both employed by the church. And um, we were living in this, these two very different worlds that didn't uh, talk to one another, that didn't relate to one another, that didn't understand one another. And um, as we continue to go, like, we started to understand less and less of those two worlds and ourselves. as It just started to get kind of confusing for us. And we wrestled with this... Uh, idea of like calling and what what are we God what are you calling us to what are we called to um, and I think in the midst of that uh, one of the really uh, people didn't mean this to be discouraging but like they would look at our lives and we were living uh, very simply in a little 700 square foot home and um, in a neighborhood that was known to be uh, or, or at least perceived to be very dangerous um, and we would have people uh, in our church all the time that, said, that would say things like, oh, this is so, what you're doing is so wonderful. I'm so glad that God has called you to do that. Right? And it became, uh, what it started again is this idea of calling was used by folks to distance themselves from doing something hard or uncomfortable. Okay? And, um, and I hated that to the point where I began to question, like, is that even really a thing, God? Like, is the idea of calling really, is it, is it biblical? Like, um, and I really, I really pushed back for years. I kind of pushed back against the whole idea and concept of, like, calling. Because I just, over and over again, my only experience with that idea in the world was, like, you're called to do that, I'm not. You have to have something, a special word from the Lord in order to do something difficult. Otherwise, you just default into a life of going to church and being in this kind of safe world. And that in order to get out of that bubble, that it, that it took a, a special word from the Lord to nudge you forward. And then, and then you couldn't resist it, right? Like you, you had to do it. And, um, and so that was kind of, that's kind of my, my first motivation for being up there and for being up here today. And then the second thing is that uh, about 10 years ago, I started working uh, in a health center. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I was trained. Uh, I, I went to seminary. Um, I started uh, working uh, in a clinic and um, over time started spending a lot of time with, with medical students and residents and helping them to discern. I think like somebody said in the back, like people are getting ready to, to finish, their, uh, finish their training and go and, and to start start working and asking these questions and they were asking these questions of like all right so now what like what am I what am I supposed to do and it's really and, and, and so I had to kind of it forced me to go back to the Bible for their sake 
and say, like, what is, what, what, what does the Bible say about this idea of calling? And how can we find, find guidance for um, these steps that, that we're taking? Um, and, and I realized, like, when I did that, it's like, it's all over the place. This idea of calling is all over the Bible. But it's, it's not what um, our culture uses it to talk about. And it's, it's not exactly what, um, probably what most of you are, are in this room for, of looking for these very specific, do, do this step, this step, this step. But it is uh, a very, very important biblical concept that I think like when we understand it and start to participate in this idea of calling the way that God intends, that it does it does create freedom in our hearts to do the good works that God has, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that he has prepared for us to walk in before the foundation of the earth. Okay, And so um, I want to try to help clarify what this idea of calling is through the scriptures. Okay, and, and, it, and it's mostly going to be very kind of general, but I think that as we, as we see that and as we wrestle with that, that God will start to shape the, the specificity in your own heart as you know what, what the Word of God has to say about it. Okay? And if we don't get there in the next you know, 40 minutes, that's what the Q&A time is for, and you can help me with questions or you know, rotten food or whatever you want to do. Okay, so, um, so I'm going to start in Romans, and we're going to, I put a bunch of scripture verses up here. We're obviously not going to read all of these, but like, this is good. Um, these scripture verses are good resources for you up on the board, um, and I'm going to read it just so that people will, will know what they are, uh, who are, who end up listening to this, if anybody ends up listening to this. But um, these are examples of calling in the Bible that we'll touch on quickly, and, and there's Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, Gideon in Judges 6, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Paul in Acts 9, Peter in uh, Luke 5, and in Acts 10. Um, and then we're going to be reading this morning um, just a couple verses in Romans. So, um, in Romans chapter 1, this is, uh, this is what Paul has to say in part about this idea of calling. And Romans opens uh, with these words. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, so in this passage, um, Paul refers to calling three times. Okay, and so the first time is where he does. He's, he's speaking about this very specific calling that God has given him to be an apostle, right? To lay a foundation for new churches in, in new areas, right? Um, to go, uh, an apostle is someone who is uh, a pioneer evangelist, but it's a little bit more, it's a little bit broader than evangelism, where the gift of an evangelist is really speaking mostly one-on-one with people or to big groups, but really helping people to connect with God, right? To, to see um, God's salvation come and, and to, to set people free from their sins and to, to walk with the Lord, okay? 
the, the idea of an apostle includes that. It's a very broad gift, right? So it touches on gifts of apostleship and pastoral ministry and teaching and prophecy. It's kind of a little bit all-encompassing. But what, it, what it's doing, what the gift of apostleship does is, is people who lay a foundation uh, for the church, for the establishment of a church in a place where it hasn't been established before. And so you see in, in most of Paul's letters, he's writing not just to individuals. He does write letters to Timothy, but he's writing to the church and that he's helping to equip the church to do the work of ministry. Okay, and so um, the, the, uh, so that is a specific part. But the other two are very general. And um, in, in verse 5, it says, uh, through him, through Jesus, we received, we, uh, Paul, and, and those who were working with Paul, um, to, to establish these churches. Uh, we received grace and apostleship. So these are gifts from God. We've received God's grace. Um, in, in, in the New Testament, like the, the Greek words um, uh, of, of grace and spiritual gifts are related. Um, charis and charismata. Charis is the word for grace. Charismata is gifts of grace, right? So the gifts that we receive from God. So we've received grace. And, and this gift of apostleship to call all the Gentiles. And so when he's saying to call, he's saying he's speaking of, he, he's serving in kind of this, this role that we see the prophets of the Old Testament uh, play where they're speaking on behalf of God. And so when he's saying we, we're calling the nations, it is, he's representing God in this work to, to call people out and, um, uh, from the nations. Uh, and, and set them apart for a specific work um, uh, to the obedience that comes from faith. So obeying God's word, um, and, and it then says for his name's sake, meaning that, that we obey God to bring glory and honor to him. Um, first and foremost, even if we were called to a life of service that helps other people, that in doing so, um, as we obey God's word, it brings glory and honor to God. And that's, that's the end for which we are working, right, is to bring glory and honor to God. And then at this very last part it says, um, you are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So as we talk about these things, I want to kind of go backwards. Right? So I want to start in this last verse and talk about what does it mean to be called to belong to Jesus, and then we're going to kind of go back up towards apostleship. All right? Uh, so, this idea of, of, of calling first, I, I put on I put on the board again a, a Greek word that's ekklesia, right? And I put the 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 definition of what that means. So, if you look at the word ekklesia and you look at the first part, the ek, right? Uh, that means out, and kaleo is the root word meaning to call, and so it means to, to call out. Okay, and so do you know what, how, we, how, how this word is translated in the Bible? Because when you read it in the Bible, it's, it's, you're never really going to see it, the called out ones. What does it refer to, the ecclesia? You guys know? Yeah, sure. I heard somebody whispering. <laughs> That's right. Ecclesia is the word in the Bible for the church. Okay? Those who have been called out. All right? And so this is, this is a very important thing for all of us to understand is that uh, if you are a Christian, right, if you see yourself as belonging to the church, you have been called. All Christians are called. There is no specific like, oh, there's, you, you have a calling. Oh, and you're, you're just a church member, right? 
That's, that's wrong. Okay? We are all called. And, and what does that mean to be called? It means called out from among all nations and set apart to do the work of God. Okay? Um, these words of, of holiness, sanctification, consecration, calling, they're all interrelated. Okay? And so when you think of the word calling, what I want from here on today forward, I don't want you to think of job. I want you to think of holiness. Okay? Because that's what the Bible primarily means when it's talking about calling. Okay? So let's, let's uh, hear a couple of passages that talk about So in, in Exodus chapter 19, when the Israelites are coming up to Mount Sinai, and God speaks, of the, the, the mountain shakes, and God speaks, and he, he tells the Israelites, he says, basically says, I have set you apart as my special possession. All right, this is where we get the idea of calling from. That, that God has set apart the nation of Israel to represent him among all nations as they live under his law, in obedience to his law. Okay? And as they do that, they bring glory and honor to God. Right? And as they don't do that, they dishonor God. Right? And so um, their, their purpose is to honor and glorify God among the nations by being obedient to his law, by being obedient to his will. Okay. And that's the same for us. That's where we get this idea. Uh, another place where to kind of think through the idea of calling is like, and this is a weird one, but um, in the tabernacle, there, were, uh, there was a lampstand, lamp right? And the Bible calls that lampstand holy. All right? That's not true. Like, how can a lampstand be holy? Right? Because when we think of holiness, we usually think of, of not sinning, right? Um, but how, how can a, a lampstand be holy? Right? Well, what makes it holy is that that, that particular lampstand was set apart, right? meaning it was not to be used for, for ordinary use. You don't take it to your home and light candles so that you can see to eat your dinner at night. Right? It would, had a very specific purpose, and that purpose was that it was used in the tabernacle as a part of... of the, the ceremonies to worship God and to honor God. And so that, that lampstand had one purpose, right, for which it was created and set apart, and that was to honor God. Okay? And so we, uh, Revelation talks about how the church is God's lampstand, right, that we have been set apart to be set apart from this world of darkness, we're to be light in the world. Okay? And that we are to be holy unto the Lord, right? which means set apart to be used by Him for, for His purposes. Is this making sense? Okay? And we're going we're to get into some specifics of like how I, I think this part works through um, in, in healthcare in just a minute. But um, we're, we're set apart to be used by God. Um, Jesus. First and foremost, uh, Paul, I mean, the, part the, the most important part of this, or, or the first part of this, is that we're not called to a job, we're called to Jesus. Okay? That Jesus sets us apart for himself and for relationship with him. If you look at Paul's introduction to the Corinthians, it talks about that we are called to the fellowship, of, of, to be in fellowship with Jesus. Okay, we're called into a relationship with him. All right, and so 
most of the people in this room are younger, right? And they're, you guys are, are, again, kind of moving from your, your education into career, and you're really focused on what am I going to do? What, what God, what do you want me to do with my life, right? And I, I want to I talk just for a second about uh, the, uh, the, the demonic influence of medical school. Okay, <laughs> medical school. So, like, Satan got a hold of the medical education. This is what he did. Okay, that in the first two years of medical school, uh, you guys, it, 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 medical school is highly competitive, right? And you you get filled with fear of thinking, like, I'm not going to survive, right? And you look around and you see everybody is like just gunning it, right? And so you get caught up into that culture. And so in the first two years of medical school. You sacrifice everything for your studies, for for uh, gross anatomy, right? You've got to get through this class, right? And so, and this is what. I, so, so for most people, they're they're leaving their home. They're not around their family. They're not around the, the church that they've been a part of. They're not a part. They're not around the this great college ministry where they started to grow spiritually and really thrive. And and so now you're in medical school, right? And your sole focus for two years is just to study, 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 right? And in, during that time, what, what you do is you stop, you stop reading the Bible, and you stop praying, and you stop participating in fellowship with others, right? And so for two years, what Satan does is he isolates you, and, and you start to focus on a very worldly thing, right, which is your degree, Okay, but you're doing it for a good purpose. That's not why you went into medical school. You went into medical school to serve God, and you went into to get a a, a, um, a talent, a resource that you can use to honor God. But first two years, you forget about God. You're, you're and you're focused on just to say, does that sound right for those of you who've gone to medical school or in medical school now? Like it's it's isolating. Okay, so after you've been isolated, then for two years you go through this long period of rush. Okay, where basically you think you're in uh, clinical medicine, segment, but that's not what's happening. Is that is that these doctors and physicians are rushing you, like just just as you did when you went through a sorority or fraternity, right? And what they're doing is they start appealing to your pride. You are so smart. Why would you think about family medicine when you could be a heart surgeon like me? You know, look at like look at all that like you're gonna have so much debt. You but if you're a heart surgeon, you can make all this money and you can live and stuff. You just start appealing to your pride and again to these worldly things, or even to like, um, don't you love you know whatever neurology? Isn't that like doesn't that make you passionate? Like it's just appealing to your flesh for two years. Okay, then you go into from there you go into residency. So for the next three to five years. You're working 80 to 100 hours a week, right? And again, like, it's just focused on work, 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 work. And so during that, like, over that time, like, things just start to shift and shift and shift in that personal relationship with Jesus, which is vital to, um, to what it means to be called by God, starts to fade, right? Jesus says in John 15 that as we abide in Christ, that's what's going to produce fruitfulness, right? Not how much you know about anatomy and physiology and, and medicine, right? Um, you're not going to make a spirit, like medical school does not prepare you, as our speaker talked last night, to, he- to actually heal people, to treat people and to help people, but true healing comes 
as people enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's true for us as well as for the people that we help. Okay? And so don't rush past this first idea. And, and don't even, like, as you're taking notes of this, don't, like, don't sit there and think, okay, Nathan, like, you're, you're talking about this first, but, like, I know that you're going to get to, like, what are we supposed to do later? Like, just kind of get to the gist of, no, like, stop. <laughs> don't do that. And I'm going to give you an example of what's going to happen if you do that, all right? Um, so this is going to just hang with me, all right? Because uh, this is a little bit of a weird story. It's going to sound like this doesn't have, a, a, it's going to sound like a non sequitur, but it's going to relate, okay? Um, we have, my wife and I have three children, uh, an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 6-year-old, okay? And uh, we had one car seat for those three children, meaning, like, they're spaced out far enough, right, that it's like we had the car seat, and they just kind of, like, just kind of moved down, moved down. Like, so our kids all shared, you know, for six or seven years, one after another, the same car seat. And, and by the time my, my poor youngest daughter, Elva, like, she, she was, um, I can't remember when it was, about... I don't know, fifth birthday or something. When did you move from our fourth, fourth birthday? Some, somewhere around there. My wife would know exactly. But as we got closer to, to her birthday, like we told her, like that you can, we're going to get rid of the car seat. You're going to get, you're going to get a new seat, baby. And she was like so excited. And she talked literally for months. You talk about because the car seat had become so lumpy that it was just like it was so uncomfortable. And we were so cheap that like we didn't like we didn't like invest the thirty dollars so that our child could be comfortable for us. Right. And so like the the day comes, her birthday comes, and we have this big celebration of the removal of the car seat. Okay. And so as we pull that, you know, we pull it out, we kind of shake it. And it's like, oh, look at what falls from the car seat. All right. And so they're there on the ground, uh, like as we're really shaking this out, there are these little black, just they're like rocks. There are these little black rocks. And they're a little flat. And they're really kind of have these sharp edges. I'm like, oh my goodness, what how who had put these sharp rocks? And we picked them up and we looked it's like one of those things. You look at it, kind of smell it, and you look at it, and you're like that's not a rock. That's a raisin. Okay? And that's not Ella's raisin. And that's not Grace's raisin. That's Caleb's raisin. And that raisin has been there in this hot car for six or seven years. Right? And it's... Um, this is food. Okay? But this is the most unappetizing food I've ever seen in my life. And it's just, it's just disgusting. Okay? Now, this is my point. That dried up, crusty raisin is going to be you if you try to pursue the things of God and to serve God without first coming to Jesus Christ and, and entering into relationship with Him in a deep and abiding way. Okay? That raisin was meant by God to be a grape. This luscious, Juicy, sweet, life-giving grape. And these two things, they are, they are made of the same thing, right? They are essentially the same thing. This dried-up crusty grape and this, I mean, this uh, beautiful grape and the dried-up raisin are essentially the same thing. But one is appetizing and the other is disgusting. And as you enter into a life of service for God, right... Your, your, your service that you, that you provide for others is going to be unappetizing spiritually to people. 
if you're not abiding in Christ, and if you don't realize that first and foremost, God has called you back into a relationship with Him. And if you think about the Garden of Eden, and what happened in the Garden of Eden, is that God created a man and woman for relationship with Him and for one another, and that they were to do His will. Right? And to listen to his voice and to obey his commands. And the sin of the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve wanted to decide for themselves what was right for what was right and wrong. Right? That was the temptation of Satan. To know good and evil for yourself and to make self determination. You decide how you're going to live your life. You decide what to do based upon this pursuit of knowledge. Okay? But God created us to be in relationship with Him and to serve Him and to honor Him. And if we try to do that part without the relationship, it's just going to crush us. Okay? So don't skip past it. And don't think, oh, I wasted my time going to this thing this morning because I thought I knew what, I thought I was going to find out what I'm supposed to do. And He just said, have a relationship with Jesus. Okay? It's essential. It's essential. All right. Second part. I'm going to read this verse again. Through Jesus we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. God has called us into relationship and He's called us to obedience. He's called us to obey His word, to live by His principles. And as we do that, we bring glory and honor to Him. Okay? does anybody know, and again, like I know this thing's full, filled with non-secularists, but does anybody know uh, in here what the tithe was supposed to be used for? Bible trivia. Anybody have a guess? Okay. Um, yes, come on. I know you know it. Oh, so that's that's in Malachi. So it says, um, "Don't don't hold back your tithe. Bring in your tithe, so that there might be food in my house." Right? Okay, and that's really good because what we what we tend to do with that, or what when you hear on a stewardship Sunday when when uh, pastors are teaching out of Malachi, I think oftentimes this gets um, over spiritualized, right? And they talk about bring in your tithe so that we can provide you with spiritual food and nourishment. That's not at all what that passage is about. Okay, um, it is so that there might be food in the storehouses. Okay, and so that goes back to Deuteronomy chapter fourteen. Okay, and in Deuteronomy fourteen is where we learn why God gave a tithe, why God called us to have a tithe. And so um, this is going to tie. You're not going to believe this is going to tie directly into medicine here in a minute. Okay, it's coming. This is this is going to take me a minute to get there. All right, so. Uh, so the Israelites, basically the book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon given by Moses as they're standing uh, out just outside of Canaan and getting ready to enter into the land of, of Canaan. Okay, and, and Moses is kind of stepping back and he's reminding people of God's law. So it's, for a lot of Deuteronomy, it's a summary of God's law. Okay, but as they prepare to go in, somewhere between Deuteronomy 8 and 11, 
Moses gives this warning. He says, guys, you're going to go into this land, and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's this rich and wealthy land. And when you get there, and after you've lived there for a while, you're going to be tempted to say, it's by the, by the work of my hands and the sweat of my, our, my brow that we have, we have earned this great wealth for ourselves. And, and, and Moses is saying, but don't forget that that's not true. You're going to believe a lie. That's not true. The truth is that God has delivered your enemies in, into your hand and that this is a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham that was given hundreds and hundreds of years ago and that God is the one who's accomplishing this for you. Okay? And then a couple ch- chapters later, he institutes the tithe. Okay? And he says that you are to take a tenth of all that you own, right? And do what with it? Okay. Some of you are smart. You're like looking at the scripture. Give it to who? The Levites. So that's that's every three years. And the, okay, year one and year two. You guys aren't going to believe this. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles. Okay, year year one and year two. What you do is that you have a party. Okay, you take a tenth of all you own, and God said, go to the place that I'll show you, all of you, all the nation of Israel, go to this place that I'm going to show to you. And it's like, if it's too far for you to travel, sell a tenth of all you own, and take the money from it, and then go to the place and take that money. When you get there, I want you to buy meat and strong drink and celebrate. Okay? Imagine if, if we did that today. Okay? Imagine if the church, like... If we just took all of our tithe in every church, in every city, right, in the United States, we gathered together in one place and had this fantastic celebration. I see people smiling. Like, this just huge party. And what if we had this party and we, just, we didn't just invite our friends, but like Jesus said, that we, we invited the, the, the poor and the lame. Right? And we gathered together. We just had this huge week-long celebration to celebrate the goodness of God. That's what the tithe was instituted for. To celebrate and to glorify God and to enjoy Him and to enjoy one another. Again, it's about fostering this relationship with God. Okay, and when and, and why is God doing this? Well, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. This is a picture of heaven. This is a picture of what God intends for our life to be like, to be celebratory, to be filled with joy and relationship with one another. Okay. Then on the third year, there's a cycle. First year, celebrate. Second year, celebrate. Third year, take a tenth of all you own and give it to the Levites. And Levites, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, you put it in the storehouses. Okay? And so what are you storing? You're storing food. Okay? You're storing the grain, the crops. Right? And then, and then what do you do with it? Well, the, the Levites are supposed to redistribute that. And they're supposed to redistribute it to who? Or to whom? Is it who or whom? They're supposed to redistribute it to the widow, the orphan, the foreigner in the land. And they, too, are supposed to participate in it. Like, that's a part of their... Uh, the provision from God for for the Levites. Okay, so it's food. So in Malachi chapter three, what's happening it, when when uh, when the, when Malachi is telling uh, the Israelites, he's saying, "You're robbing God. Bring in the full 
the, the full tithe so there might be food in my storehouse and so that the poor might be cared for through the redistributing of provision for them. And what's happening is that they're taking their time and they're living for themselves, right? They're taking that and instead of being generous with it so that those who are poor and marginalized might be, uh, might be provided for by God. God's plan was to provide for those who are poor through, through his people. So that just as, so that this generosity that's been given by God to the people through this rich and abundant land that God generously gave to the people so that they might be blessed, so that they might in turn give what they've received from God to others. Okay, and there are warnings over and over again, like as you know that, so, so if you know what the tithe is supposed to be used for, and you know that this is one of the roles of the Levites, of the spiritual leaders of Israel, was to redistribute and to provide for those who were marginalized in their society, you start, it starts to make sense of scripture passages like Ezekiel 34. Okay, and so let me, let's, it, uh, this is just, put this one on your list too, to read, to read later and to study, but in Ezekiel 34 it says this, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And so they were scattered. Okay. So there are a couple things that we're getting there. We're getting to the medical part. We're getting closer. Okay. But, but what the religious leaders of Israel were supposed to do is that they were supposed to care for people spiritually. They were also supposed to care for people physically. And it says specifically that they were supposed to bring healing to them, to bind up their wounds. And instead of doing those things, that they've lived for themselves and they've taken what God intended for them to receive and to pass on to others, they're hoarding it for themselves. And their lifestyles are getting wealthier and wealthier. Better and better off. To the exclusion of those that God would have them to serve and to help. Okay? Later, wait for it, it's coming two more minutes. Later in this very same passage, God says, Because you have not shepherded shepherded my people, I myself am going to come and provide for my sheep. I am going to be the good shepherd. And I am going to bind them up. And I am going to bring healing to them. And I am going to provide for them. And so this prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, right? Jesus the Good Shepherd. And in Matthew chapter 9, as you read the title headings that go through there, it talks about Jesus healing the lame, Jesus healing the blind, Jesus healing the deaf. Okay? Over and over and over again. Healing stories. Okay? And then at the very end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, Look! They are like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, um, pray that the Lord would send you out and send people out to the harvest in my harvest field. And then he calls, he calls, right? He calls his disciples where? To himself. And he, 
he, he, he prays for them and he anoints them and he gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And he send, sends them out on mission to preach the good news of the gospel and to heal the sick. God's intention is, is not for medicine to be set apart as just a career unto itself. It, it is intimately tied in with his purposes in the world to bring healing to the nations. And it's uh, that he has called you and set you apart for that purpose to bring glory and honor to God through this ministry of healing. Okay? And what we've done uh, is it, 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 in the medical system today is that, that we have been like the, the religious leaders of Ezekiel 34. Okay? That we have justified our abundance because of the great debt that we have to take on to get through medical school. Okay? But, but that in our wealth and our affluence has grown and grown and grown and grown. And that we're participating in a worldly system of medicine that's driven by economics and not by the mercy of God. So what does it mean for you to be called into this field of medicine? That God has called you to himself to be in relationship with him. And he has poured gifts and mercy and grace and wealth into your life. Not so that you might be comfortable, but so that you might be a blessing to others. And as you bless others, God will be glorified because the world will see his grace, his mercy being displayed. Not just in text, but through your life. In real and tangible ways, in real healing is going to come forth, and God's going to be honored. And so, my answer to, to you is, and to you is that, like, is this going to glorify God? Be free. You don't have to wait for the for for a specific word. Be free. Like God has given you those gifts and those relationships and those talents to bring glory and honor to Him. Right? Like, do it. It is so essential um, that we have a biblical understanding of uh, of what God is doing, right? In order for us to kind of find calling, like uh, what we want to do, what I see with medical students over and over and over again as they're wrestling through calling, they start with, this is what I want, this is what I like, this is what, and they don't ever get to this picture of like, what is God doing? What is God's mission? Um, Hudson Taylor uh, said, uh, he said, I stopped. Uh, for, for, for many years, I, I prayed, God, help me. And then one day he started praying, God, how can I help you? God, how can I help you accomplish your mission, your purposes on the earth? Okay. Um, all these guys that we have listed up here on the board, um, you know something that they all have in common? is that um, they felt weak. 
they felt uh, like Moses, you know, when God calls them to confront Pharaoh, he says, I, I stutter. How am I supposed to speak? They're not going to believe that you sent me, right? And so God equips them with these miracles to do. He says, do this, take this staff and throw it on the ground, turn it into a snake. They'll believe that I sent you, right? He says, if you have trouble speaking here, it's your brother Aaron. He'll go with you. He'll speak on your behalf. He equips them to do the work. And Moses still comes back. He's like, God, I can't do anything. Then God gets angry, right? Because God has taken Moses and he has set him apart to be holy, to be used by God for God's purposes. And what Moses doesn't realize is that 80 years ago, before Moses was ever born, that the Israelite people were in captivity in Egypt and they cried out to God for a Savior. They cried out and said, God, save us. We're being persecuted here. And 80 years later, God is answering their prayers and their cries by saying, Moses, you're the guy. I'm using you to answer the prayers of my people 80 years ago. And they're in captivity and I'm releasing them. But God almost always uses human agency to complete his promises and to accomplish his purposes. And he doesn't, like when we think about Moses, like he uses ordinary, weak people like you and I. Moses was just like you. He sinned against God. He was cowardly. He was confused. And the reason why we look at Moses and see him as this, this great prophet of God is not because there's the, the, the one thing that was special about him is one thing that's special about all these guys is they, they just surrendered. They submitted to God and said, God, in my weakness, use me. The same thing with Gideon. When Gideon is approached by this angel... In, in Judges chapter 6, the, the angel calls out to Gideon and says, Mighty warrior. That's how he addresses Gideon. And Gideon says, What? Me? He says, No, you don't understand. I'm the weakest man in my family. My family's the weakest man in my clan. This weakest in the clan. My clan's the weakest in my tribe. My tribe's the weakest in, in all Israel. And Israel is the smallest, most pathetic, weak nation in all the earth. Gideon sees himself as literally the weakest man on earth. And God chooses him. He calls him to himself. He sets him apart from this worldly system of what's going on around him. right? And the first way that he experiences God's holiness and the set-apartness is he says, I want you to confront the sins of your father by tearing down all the altars that he's built to Baal. And Gideon says, of course, Lord, I would love to do that because I am your servant. No, he doesn't say that. He says... Lord, if I do that, they're going to know, the villagers are going to know, they're going to know that it was me, and they're going to kill me. And yet, he humbles himself, and in the secret of night, right, he sneaks out and he tears down all of of the altars. And the next morning, people wake up and they praise God for having been set free from this idolatry. No, that's not what happens. The, The villagers come out, and they say, who's torn down our idols? It must be Gideon. Let's kill him. And Gideon's like, oh, I told you, God. This is going to happen. And Gideon's father steps in, in. And you see this picture of repentance. Of the heart's father turning to his son and says, you can't have my son. And they, 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 leave, they leave Gideon alone. And that's the beginning of, of Gideon's calling. And, and, and 
working towards confronting the armies of Midian with 200 men, right? It is, it is this journey towards him actually becoming this great warrior. And that sometimes when God calls to us, great and mighty warrior, we feel like we're the weakest person on earth. God sees things in us that we don't see in ourselves. And what was in Gideon? The Gideon, the, the, the Gideon didn't know. The, the Gideon was incredibly generous. He was incredibly generous. That, that as this angel called him, that Gideon's response to, to this angel was to go out and, and to make a sacrifice. And he takes this huge grain offering, which is ten times what was required by the law. And he gives this huge grain offering to God in a time of famine. And what God saw in Gideon that he couldn't see himself is his, his generosity, his obedience his willingness to make sacrifice. Isaiah is, um, when, when Isaiah sees this vision of God, his first thing to do is he sees the holiness of God, the beauty, the majesty of God in the temple. And what does he do? He cries out, he's, God, I am a man of unclean lips. He sees immediately his weakness, his sin. God cleanses him of his sin. And then ask, who's going to go for me? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, not knowing what the job is going to be, right? I'll go for you. And again, this picture is like, not first and foremost of God, what am I going to do? But first of coming into relationship with God. Recognizing the holiness of God and saying, God, you are holy, I'm sinful. You are Lord, I'm your slave. You have the right to do with me whatever you wish. And guys, if we can get to that place of like not worrying about like is this going to match my gifts or talents? Is this what I'm passionate about? Is this like if we just surrender to God, say, God, you can do whatever you wish with me. He is going to use you again to bring glory and honor to his name. He's not going to say, oh, I'm just going to let, I'm going to let this humble servant, like, just sit off on the side. We're just, no, that's what God's looking for. He's working. He's calling for, he's, he's sending prophets. He's sending us his word to get us to this place of just, like, recognizing our brokenness and, and calling out to God and saying, God, like, I need you and I want you and, and do whatever you want with me. And that's Isaiah. And then Isaiah gets the worst, um, job description ever, right? God tells him, he's like, I want you to confront the sins of your family, uh, confront the sins of the Israelites, and I want you to preach my word to them, but I'm going to harden their hearts and deafen their ears, and nobody's going to change. What a terrible job, right? To be called to be a preacher, but there's never going to be repentance. Be called to be a prophet, but there's never going to be repentance in his lifetime. And yet, he's obedient. He submits to that. And now... Hundreds of years later, we're still celebrating the work and ministry of Isaiah, especially every time around Christmas where we, where we celebrate these great prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And so even though Isaiah didn't see fruitfulness of his ministry in his lifetime, because of his submission to the Lord, there was great fruit. Great glory and honor was brought to God through Isaiah's life because of his willingness to come to his Holy Father, surrender to him, submit to him. And God 
used him for his purposes. Which is what all of us ultimately really want, right? Is that we just don't want to be left aside. We want to honor God. This passage in, in, in Romans, I'm just going to sum up with this because I think we're at, we've got to do some questions and answers. But that passage in Romans, it just talk, it talks about that God has called us and set us apart to be obedient by faith to his word so that Jesus might be honored. And that's what it, that's what it means to be called by. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be the people of God. Alright, so y'all ask, like, what, what is the Spirit of God doing in your hearts this morning? And how does He want you to respond? Or what questions do you have that maybe can help bring more clarity? Can I just say something? Yeah. Uh, as a non-medical You've been smiling this whole time. <laughs> I, I just want to say amen to everything you said. Yeah, I can see uh, it in your face. <laughs> There are not a lot of questions. So as I was praying for you guys um, yesterday morning and for the people who are going to be here. And this is getting like, I never, ever do this. This is way outside of my level of comfort here. Okay, Um, But I feel like there's somebody in this room who um, is a gifted singer. Okay? um, But is uh, maybe afraid to use that gift. Is that right? Is there anybody in here that you know, like, or, or is, is afraid of getting up in front of people? Or um, so, so what I was supposed to do is like tell, like, if, if they're friends around this person, is there anybody in here? It's like gifted and singing. I say, okay, you just point at somebody. She has a look about her. Who? Where? <laughs> the girl in the cream sweater. Can you sing? You wish you could? (laughs) Yeah. I need somebody who doesn't want to do this to come forward and to sing the doxology with us and for us. Anyone? God didn't give me a name. He just said to say this. Maybe I'm supposed to repeat this on Saturday, so maybe it's somebody in that group. No, we can't because it's not about the song. Would you come forward and sing sing for us? I know this is so weird. Yes. I've got it on my phone. Yeah. Yes. Seriously, the two of you guys come up together. Let's say, so the, the doxology goes like this. Okay, it's um. Oh, I'm getting text messages here. Let me try. Oh, okay. All right. So these are the words. It says, "Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost." Okay. You want to look at it? And you just follow her leading. Okay. So you start to... Do you sing? Yeah. Do you sing publicly? Sometimes. Sometimes, okay. 
All right, so you all can see this. And just kind of, and we're all. Do y'all know the doxology? Okay, so I want you. This is going to feel really weird. Y'all are going to just sing. The, y'all wait until after they finish the first verse. All right, and then we're going to join in. So after they say, "Praise God from whom all blessings flow." All right. Yeah, okay. And then, <laughs> and then we're all going to join in on the second part. All right. So you'll start. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise to Our strengths and our weaknesses work together. Things you like to sing, right? Yes? Okay. You like to sing, and that's something that's important to you, and it gives you life, right? Is that right? Yes. Okay. But you're shy. <laughs> okay? And it's like, it's very weird for you to come up here, and it feels like, I can't do this. Is that right? Okay. And so, that's how calling works. Okay? God has given us strengths and abilities and loves and passions. But we also have weakness and frailness. And that when we submit to God, and you submitted, like you didn't want to come up here, right? But you humbly came forward, right? And you used these things that you love, and it built all of us up. Okay? That that's how gifts in the body work, is that our gifts are not intended for really for our own. We, we do enjoy them. But they're intended to build up the church so that all of us together can worship God. Okay, and so I feel like the reason that God put somebody like you on my heart, not knowing who it was, is just to give us an example of what of what calling and, and gifting looks like. Okay, of just being willing to be humble and to submit to something that we don't always want to do in order for God to be glorified, the doxology, and for us to be built up. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So let me close just with a word of prayer for us. Okay. Heavenly Father, I just I thank you so much for that picture. And Lord, even how um, the other young woman who came up here, um, she uh, maybe was a little bit further along in the development of the gifts that you've given her. And um, that she she has some before and she has some publicly. And how you brought them up here together. That you used um, the gifts of your church to strengthen us and to encourage us. And Lord, how that's just a, a, a representation of those two young women being up here, that that's a picture of your church and that's a picture of us. And so Lord, I pray that if there's just any, I pray against all fear and doubt for folks who are gathered this wrong, Lord, if they've just been struggling with fear and doubt about stepping out in faith and obeying your word and not knowing, God, is this really what you want me to do? Is it okay for me to do this? Is it not okay, Lord, that they would just be free? They would be free of that. 
that you would silence the enemy who wants to squelch them. He wants to silence them. He wants to keep them in confusion. Lord, that you would set them free. Help them to be courageous in honoring you with their lives. Help them to be generous. Help them to fight against just their own selfish motivations that we all have, Lord, and um, that we all struggle with. Give us victory over those things so that we might be generous with our lives and bring glory and honor to you as you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.